Welcome to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Red Eye. I'm your host, Eddie Palmian, and next to me is my friend, Niklas Savos. How are you doing today? Today is the best day of the year. It's my birthday, so it's fantastic today. Congratulations. Nice to wake up with a few gifts and, and songs, so I'm, I'm happy. But mostly looking forward to today's recording. Of course. Uh, yes, good. Uh, today we are thrilled to talk with uh, Bethany McLean, one of the world's most prominent financial and investigative journalists, a contributing editor for Vanity Fair magazine, and currently writing a book on COVID-19's impact on the economy that we are really looking forward to read. She has published three books in the last decade about the financial crisis, the US mortgage giants, as well as the latest book Saudi America and the truth about fracking and how it's changing the world. Yet Bethany McLean is still probably most renowned for the book she co-authored on the scandal of Enron from 2003, with a new edition published in 2013. And a documentary based on the book was nominated for an Academy Award in 2006. Why have we chosen this book? So it's been 20 years since Enron collapsed. Although I think most people are familiar with the company name, many might not know or remember the lessons. And uh, I think the story is both fascinating and scary, as much as it is about business it's about people thinking and behavior like self-delusion greed and ego and we think it's a gem with tons of lessons for investors on maybe mostly what to avoid in 2019 i compiled a list of 20 lessons uh, for investingbythebooks.com and uh, we can put a link to that in the show notes so eddie what is the smartest guys in the room about As uh, highlighted by the subtitle of the book, it uh, tells the fascinating story of the amazing rise and the scandalous fall of Enron. And Enron was a Wall Street darling at the time and at the peak, the seventh largest company in the US before it eventually filed for the, at the time, largest bankruptcy in US history in 2001 on December 2nd, actually. And the book is chronological and takes us through how the company and primarily management fooled everyone, basically regulators, rating agencies, sell-side equity analysts and investors. And it kept going for many, many years. It also shows how auditors who were paid by the company, and they were paid a lot, they had a short-term incentive to be part of the fraud. So really to sum up it, uh, all the lines of defense broke down in this case. Uh, so this is a bit different maybe from the other episodes we had, but um, how can we put this in the framework of Red Eye Quality Rating? I think the Enron scandal shows the importance of having an objective checklist and that people, business and financials are the key elements in that. In Enron, the people in charge were talking more than they delivered and large parts of the business were unproven or not durable and the financials were not simply not adding up. Yeah. Do you have some other thoughts about the book? I think the collapse really highlights the importance of, of critical analysis. Without whistleblowers, short sellers and outstanding work from investigative journalists, the fraud would likely have gone on even longer to the detriment of society. We are grateful to have uh, one such outstanding investigative journalist on the show today. Here comes our conversation with Bethany McLean. So Bethany McLean, welcome to Investing by the Books podcast. Thanks for having me. Great to have you on. Where are you now? I am in New York. A new apartment, right? Yes, a new apartment in New York. I decided to get brave in the middle of the pandemic. I had lived here for a long time when I was younger. And in the middle of the pandemic, I bought an apartment. <laughs> when everybody was saying New York is dead and it's never coming back and the city is done for, I thought, well, 
I'll still like it anyway. So here I am. Sounds like a good investment. Well, I bought it as a I bought it as a home, not as an investment, which is generally my approach to real estate. So we'll see. That's great, and I mean we we know from listening to to other interviews that you, you're not interested in investing. No, it's it's very odd, right? I, I because I like financial markets. I find this stuff obviously really interesting. It's what I've covered for 25 years. But when it comes to my own own portfolio, I have no desire to execute or to even think that way. It is a lot for me to even be able to look at at, at my little bit of investments and, and see how they're doing. I just, I, I, I don't care. And I can you know, look through the details of an investment if I'm writing about it, but if it's something I might invest in that somebody sent me, I, I, I just, I, I can't. I think it's an odd, we all have our interests and then our bias to action and what, how that, what form that action takes. And for me, it takes writing about something or I'm not, I can't be really interested i think it's uh i think it's fantastic and i mean some of the best investors are quite passive so it's uh it it, it isn't necessarily a negative i would say and um, no. <laughs> i would say i mean uh, otherwise from uh, from your work as a as a investigative journalist i mean you're un- uncovering a lot of scandals and uh, i think that really helps others to make great decisions. So you, you're helping society allocating capital in a better way, I think, you know, which is fantastic. <laughs> I, I hope so. I don't think I've ever gone about my work with some grand view of helping society. I've mainly done it because I'm interested in it. And I do, I suppose that's sort of a selfish view of the world, but I do also believe that if you're not really interested, you won't do your best work. So I, maybe that's a rationalization. So turning the focus to to the book, uh, The Smartest Guys in the Room, was uh, 20 years ago now, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Hard to believe. Well, the Enron scandal was 20 years ago. The book was 17, was published 17 years ago. Not, yeah. not that I suppose that's kind of splitting hairs or a distinction without a difference, but <laughs> sounds like a little bit less time. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's it's one of my favorite books on uh, on business in general, and I think it's, it's packed with wisdom about business and uh, maybe maybe more about business gone wrong, but also I think there are nuggets uh, in the book that that is really helpful for for both investors and, and businessmen. I would say. Thank you. Um, in your own words, can you briefly introduce us to to the story of Enron? Sure. So Enron was for a little while one of the most admired companies in the United States and indeed around the world. They had really shaken up the state old energy business, which was mainly moving natural gas via pipelines and, you know, didn't didn't seem all that exciting. And Enron had under its um, chief operating officer for many years, a guy named Jeff Skilling, had pioneered this idea of trading natural gas, much as you might trade stocks or, or bonds, a little bit different, but the idea that you could split natural gas up into its components and trade the contracts. And Enron really created that business. And then they began to create a whole bunch of other businesses. And so they had this reputation of being this incredibly innovative and incredibly profitable um, company that was really, really changing the world. They had this motto, ask why. Um, they did all these ads on national TV and, and, and magazines, you know, touting their, touting their, touting their innovation. And I think when they 
all of a sudden went from darling to bankrupt within the space of about six months. It was really shocking. And I've often wondered why the Enron story has stood the test of time the way it, the way it has, why people still care all these years later. And I think it was because we were coming off a lot of time where there hadn't been major collapses or scandals in American business. And at that very same time, a lot of people had begun to invest on their own and put their money in the market as retirement plans move from being defined benefit plans that pay you a certain amount to defined contribution plans where you you effectively have to take care of your own portfolio. You suddenly had all these people who had to be interested in the market, and all these employees who were getting stocks, getting stock as part of their um, as part of their retirement plans. And so everybody cared a lot more. And there, it, the idea that a company that was this highly regarded and such a superstar could just suddenly go kaboom was this um, moment of of cynicism that I, I don't think we've ever really recovered from. And I, I think it was the canary in the coal mine for the financial crisis and for a lot. Lot of um, cynicism about the way things work that ha- that has that has come subsequently. And just to put it in perspective, how how big was Enron at the time, and can you compare it in terms of size or influence to any company today? You know what's funny is I I, I don't remember the actual loss in market cap. It was big, but it, it wasn't it wasn't systemic. It wasn't a company that that its fall was going to take down other other companies. I suppose I would compare it to a little bit to if Tesla were to go bankrupt. It's different because there's a lot of skepticism about Tesla out there, so it's not the same thing. It's a different era. Obviously, in the days of Enron, it was before financial Twitter, FinTwit, and sort of the widespread availability of skeptical information. If you if you so desire to to, to look, but um, but I suppose I would compare it. I suppose that's a comparable. Would you say the skepticism then was more hidden than it is, than it is with Tesla today? Or no, it was very different. The skepticism was very much under the surface because short sellers who there there were a number of people who were skeptical about Enron who were short the stock, but they didn't talk publicly. They didn't go on TV. They didn't post their views on Twitter. So there was almost no way to know that there was. If you were an average person investing your portfolio, there was almost no way to know that there was this immense wave of skepticism about Enron coming from very sophisticated investors that just it just wasn't public anywhere. So it's almost as if there were two realities. There was the surface reality, which was the Wall Street analyst saying, buy this stock, it's going to double in the next year. Here's our $150 price target. It's 70 today. And, um, and portfolio manager saying in the press, you know, Enron is the best company since sliced bread. And then there were these, you know, short sellers saying in the saying, very quietly, it's it's a fraud, and it's going to go and it's going to go bankrupt. But there, the, the two narratives didn't meet at all. Whereas in the case of Tesla, the two narratives meet and get duped out. I mean, not really. I don't think anybody listens to each other on financial Twitter. But whatever, they're both there at least. They're present in the same reality. <laughs> <laughs> and just to understand the people, because the book is so detailed, and there is a lot of great portraits of all these people. Can you just take us through the key characters and? Who are they? The most key character is Jeff Skilling, who was the chief operating officer of Enron, really its creator and its CEO for the last year of its existence. And he, um, I, I, I still find him a fascinating character. I've talked sometimes about this fine line between a visionary and a fraud, where it often is just the outcome that determines how somebody is seen. And I think if 
Enron had been Tesla and had continued to be able to raise money from the market and hadn't had this crisis of confidence that that suddenly stopped it from being able to get cash from 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 investors from the capital markets. I think Jeff Skilling could have gone down in history as a, as a visionary. One of the businesses he had created was something called Enron Broadband, which essentially was Netflix ahead of ahead of its time. Um, but he he his his really I, I've often thought we all have fatal flaws. I think his fatal flaw was that he couldn't he, he needed success before it had actually come, and so he he needed Enron to be a star for for his own ego, and so he promised Wall Street um, a certain amount of earnings every quarter, and damn Enron was going to deliver, and so <laughs> come hook or crook or fraud, and Andy Fastow, the CFO, was the guy who made the numbers work, who essentially came up with all these incredibly complicated financial transactions to enable Enron to report profits that weren't actually economically real. And there is an interesting nexus of personality between the two of them because later after Enron had went had gone bankrupt, the whole the whole case against Jeff Skilling rested the whole criminal case against Jeff Skilling rested on whether or not he knew what Andy Fastow was up to. And the jury chose to believe that 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 he did. And I think we in our book thought that he hired Andy precisely because he knew Andy would be willing to to to, to push the envelope in ways that would work for Jeff. So there, I always find these stories of business or business gone wrong, these fascinating Shakespearean dramas of not just characters, but the interplay between characters. And then there was Ken Lay, who had been the CEO of Enron, who became the chairman um, when Jeff Skilling stepped in as CEO. And Ken was also, he was a, a guy who grew up with nothing um, and became one of the wealthiest, supposedly most successful men in America. But with that came a lot of entitlement. And I've often thought to myself, well, which character do I kind of like more and have more sympathy for? The Jeff Skilling, who in some ways orchestrated this this whole thing, or the Ken Lay, who just said, I don't know what's going on, but I'm going to sit here and collect my hundreds of millions of dollars. And I, I actually think I despise Ken Lay a little bit more. That's interesting. Um I want I want you I, I want to take us a bit back uh, before going deeper and I mean you mentioned your interest in uh, in these stories have you always been interested in in these kind of uh, kind of stories also was that was that a way uh, in for you in into the investigative journalism business or no, it really, it really wasn't. <laughs> but I also think that I, I was not a kid with a particular focus on what I was going to do when I when I grew up. And my family is all scientists, and so I actually, if I thought I was going to do anything, it would have been probably be a math professor. And I actually was a math major in college, as as, as well as an English major. But I, I probably was more driven by math when I was younger, and if I had. And my thoughts of a career were probably such as such that they were were probably math oriented. So I never worked for my college paper. I didn't work for my high school paper. I think part of that was part of that was my own my own lack of direction. But part of it was also growing up in a family where the idea of being a journalist was would would not have been acceptable. So I think that I think those two things kind of came came together. But I did. It's funny looking back on it. My favorite books growing up were always the sci fi fantasy books from the Foundation series to the Lord of the Rings to Terry Brooks sort of Shannara. And I think these are all these stories of uh, good versus evil, and in some cases, relatively complicated characters and things playing out in, in interesting ways. And I, I think that probably does shape some of my approach to storytelling. That's really interesting. And and you, you, you were an investment analyst, right? It was the beginning of your career. 
I was very briefly. So when I got out of college, I went to work at Goldman Sachs for three years. They had a, at that time they had a training program. It was supposed to be a two-year program where they took people right out of college and you basically worked in the trenches for, for a few years and got to see how, how things worked. And that wasn't it. I never wanted to be a young investment banker. I don't even think I knew what investment banking was. They were not happy years for me, but it turned out to be a very useful detour because I do think that understanding some of how this stuff works or at least not being afraid of it is very useful if you're going to do this kind of journalism. I think it really shows up in the book as well. I mean, you show that you really understand the the uh, the industry and I mean it's interesting that you that I mean that you came from that background I'm an equity analyst myself, and it's it's quite often you see people that are either driven to that road because of their, I mean, that they're good with numbers, or they like to write narratives, I would say. And I would have guessed that you, that you came in because of the narratives, but it's interesting that you came from the other side. But don't you sometimes think there's not much of a difference between the two? I mean, there is, but you can create, doing a math proof is essentially a narrative with numbers. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you need to be really logical in your in your way of, of writing. Yeah. And that uh, later you came to Fortune. That was uh, right after Goldman Sachs, right? I did. I was on my way to business school and I thought, what am I going to do with an MBA? I'm going to end up right back on Wall Street because I'll have to pay my business school debts. And this isn't what I want to do. I want to be a journalist. And so at that time, I got really lucky because at that time, the glossy magazines like Fortune had what were known as reporter roles, where you were you were basically a fact checker. So it was a way in the door for somebody like me who didn't have any journalism background, but who could arguably convince people at Fortune that I was smart enough to check and knew enough about finance to be able to check the facts on a, on a story. And so that was my way in the door. And I got hired in 1995, which was the start, I guess, of the last golden age of journalism because it was the first dot-com boom and all the dot-com companies advertised heavily. And this was before the days of Google and Facebook. So they advertised in the glossy magazines. And so Fortune had more ad pages than they knew what to do with, which meant they needed more content than they could possibly publish, which meant that even for someone like me who was regarded as not being able to write, um, there was a place for me to write because they were desperate for content. (laughs) So I look back on that. A lot of life is timing. And I look back on and think I got, I just got extraordinarily lucky because I was able to, I was, people were patient with me and I was able to learn to write in a way that I'm not sure you would get that grace period in a more, in a more fraught competitive environment. When reading the book, uh, I think, I mean, I I was really fascinated of uh, how it could, could go on so long. I mean, it it seems like, I don't know if it was, but it, it seems like really so long time. And I mean, it, it feels like the odds of a breakdown really, really increases um, with, I mean, one line, it, it breaks down in one line, say management, maybe the, the first line. And then it seems, it seems like that, that really impacts the next line. And that's really, I mean, you, you wrote about book about the financial crisis and I think it was quite, quite similar then. And I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on that momentum effect that that's created really. Yeah, I was thinking about this this morning, because if you spend any time on Twitter, once again, people will say, well, about Tesla, for instance, well, look at how much the stock has gone up. Of course, it's not fraud. The stock wouldn't have gone up for all these years if there were if there were fundamental problems in the business. And I think, oh, you naive idiots. And I'm not, I, by the way, I'm quite neutral on, on, on Tesla. I see the pros and cons. So I'm not I'm not saying that Tesla is, is a fraud. I actually don't. I, I, I don't believe that. But I'm just I'm 
I'm using it as an example of something where people use the stock price increase as proof that the company must be fantastic. And you know that was how people thought about Enron. They would say uh, the board, the board of directors. I remember one member of the board of directors saying to me after the fact, "It's just the self reinforcing quality because you already think that these people are smart, and then you look at how the stock market is rewarding them, and the stock market is saying they're really smart, and it all becomes this cacophony of look at how smart these guys are, and it drowns out any skepticism you 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 might feel, and that goes on until it doesn't. And finding figuring out what that point is, it's it's that magical elusive tipping point that you never know in advance what it's going to be. It was the same thing with the subprime mortgage crisis. For years, people were looking at the housing market in America and saying, this isn't sustainable. These prices can't keep going up like this. I don't care that prices have always gone up throughout history. They just, this, this, this is insane, but they just kept going up until they didn't. And even then after they stopped going up, it took a little while for that to spill over and collapse the mortgage market. So these things, I, I don't know, I think it's the saying, is it Keynes? I think it's Keynes who says the market can stay insane a lot for a lot longer than you can stay solvent, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, really. I mean, I think you also view the world like this. I mean, both me and Eddie tries to take a multidisciplinary perspective to things. And I mean, I, I'm just thinking about the enge- engineering discipline who, who have this margin of error and and the concept of breakpoints and, and so on. Yeah, that's interesting. In a way, I think investigative journalists are one way of a, of a breakpoint, but the other, the other could be a short seller. That's also one that's really interesting to hear your perspective on. Maybe I don't know that either are breakpoints necessarily, at least if you think, if you think historically, it's rare that either one has been. I did this skeptical story about Enron in February, I guess, of 2001. And I don't really think it mattered. I think I, I I don't think it mattered in the sense that I don't think it caused Enron's bankruptcy. I think I picked up on underlying skepticism that was already there. And then I think things followed the exact course of events that they would have, regardless of whether I had written that story. I think in the financial crisis, I don't think it mattered that lots of people said home prices cannot go up anymore. I don't think that was, was I don't think that was the break point. If you think about Wirecard, people were warning for years, maybe even a decade, that Wirecard was a fraud. You had a short seller being public. You had the FT um, um, writing really compelling pieces about what was wrong at Wirecard, and it didn't It didn't matter until, until it did. I guess the only counterexample I could give would be Theranos, where the Wall Street Journal's reporting really did change the trajectory of, of that company. So I guess to me, the more interesting question is, when is it a breakpoint and when isn't it? And is there any it, when is public skepticism a breakpoint and when does it just not matter? And it, it, can you point to any differences in those cases? Or again, is it just random? I suspect it's probably random. And the question is also like what to look for. And in the book, you really show that Enron were like masters of creative accounting. And for example, Skilling is toasting in champagne to celebrate an accounting change. And um, yeah, the question comes down to, and also for the breakpoints, as you say, like what is it that impacts the market? What is it? actually looking at and uh, what should you do as an investor one example is to compare earnings with cash flows and so on but do you have any other such uh, signals or tools well going 
Well, going back to where we began this conversation, I'm not an investor and I pretend to be one even less all these years later than I did back when I first started my journalism career. And I I was closer to Wall Street, I suppose. I'm, I'm, I'm really not anymore. But I do think it comes back to the old adage that Warren Buffett used to use, which is that if you don't understand what you're buying, don't, don't, don't buy it. In other words, maybe, maybe do buy an Enron when you know that you don't understand their, their, their numbers and that you're betting on the momentum or the, uh, the hype surrounding the company, but at least know that that's why you're buying it and that you don't understand that, that there are these problems. And I think that's just being, being very clear eyed. And I, because you can, you can make a lot of money for a lot of years before fraud collapses, right? And as long as you're aware of the signs and you're willing to, to take, to take that bet, then I don't know, go for it. But at least, but at least be clear in your own mind that you don't, that there are these questions. And I think anybody who had gone through Enron's financial statements would say, I don't understand how this is working because you couldn't. And so if people had been honest about that, then the whole thing never would have taken off the way that it did. But no one wants to be honest about that when they think they can, they can make money. We all always, I guess we're all the smartest guys in the room. We all want to, we all want to believe we can outsmart other, others around us. Yeah, it comes down to a circle of competence, I guess. Yeah. Good advice. I was just going to say that I, I think obviously debt, right? I mean, this is it's another Buffett thing, but you can live a lot longer if you don't have a lot of leverage. And if you, it was very clear when you looked at Enron's financial statements that its debt was rising rapidly, and that didn't make any sense for a company that was supposed to be as profitable as it as it was. And any company that is that is totally dependent on on the capital markets to sustain it, you know. You, you just that, that that company is automatically subject to a crisis of confidence. Yeah, Enron was really like growth at any price. That was all that it mattered, and uh, the illusion of growth at any price. I was going to say, <laughs> yeah, the illusion of growth definitely. But it was like the financing what was held scaling back. Without that, I mean, he could just go on. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, I was just thinking about that that concept. A, a big number multiplied with zero is still zero, and you don't want that zero. Yes. <laughs> and that's another Buffett uh, quote. Right. I mean, uh, I think maybe now we we discussed B- Buffett, and um, I mean, it would be interesting to hear about your day with Buffett. <laughs> yeah, so that was one of the few positive stories I've gotten to do over my last 10 or 15 years. And I, we were Vanity Fair was really interested in the question of succession at Berkshire Hathaway. So Buffett said, well, come spend the day with me and talk about the business. And I think what stood out to me the most about, about that, there were two things. Uh, one was that he said that his goal, the most important thing to him was that Berkshire Hathaway was around in 100 years. And he thought that because it's an insurance company and he wanted to make sure, he, he thought it was his obligation to make sure that it could pay, um, that it could stand there as an insurance company to to insure these contracts for, for the time it had promised. And I thought if more people thought that way, if more business people thought my goal is to make sure my company is around in 100 years, and thriving, that we would have a very different, we, we wouldn't see these um, enormous collapses that, that that we do. But our capital markets for a long time have, have switched to enabling people to extract a lot of money regardless of the long-term success of their companies. And not surprisingly, we're all incentive-driven creatures. And the more that's possible, the less people care if, if, if their company survives and thrives. And I, th- I think that's, that's a huge problem. But the other thing he said that I found 
really interesting. I was really exhausted and we got to dinner and we were having a root beer floats. And it had been, I think I'd been with them since eight o'clock. And I think I was six or seven months pregnant at the time and had the flu and was, you know, by that time was just like, <laughs> because, you know, talking to Buffett for that long is, is, is exhausting. I yeah. mean, he's brilliant and wonderful, but you know, at, at a certain point you're like, can I have a glass of wine and <laughs> Vogue magazine? I'm done. Uh, anyway, so I remember thinking, thinking, oh, I'm going to ask him about his charity work. And this is going to take up all of dinner because people, rich people love to talk about all the good they're doing in the world by giving away their money. So he had, it had been some years ago that he had decided to give all of his money to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And, and so I said, well, tell me about the work you're doing. And he looked at me and he said, you know, I, I don't care. I mean, I care in the abstract. Of course, I want to do good. That's why I gave away my fortune. But I know that, that the mechanics of how the money is given away and what we, what we give to that, that, those aren't my passion. So I gave it to somebody who, who, to whom it was their passion. And that was the end of the answer. And I thought, Oh no, but I, but that stuck with me all these years later because he wasn't, um, he wasn't politically correct about his answer. He didn't have, you know, the three examples of of fixing malaria in Africa and how this meant so much to him. He just he just said, "I know I want to do the right thing with my money and, and make sure it goes in, in in the right in the right place." But this isn't my passion. I thought, how good to be honest with yourself about what your passions are, what really interests you, so that that's where you spend your time, and so that you're not pretending you're interested in something you're not for the sake of external um, image. Um, and therefore, you know, wasting your time and your real creativity on things that aren't your aren't your passion. So, oh, it's really. I mean, most of his success can can probably be attributed to to focus. I think it's one of the key pillars. So, to avoid uh, spending time, how how are you doing your your time as an investigative journalist? I guess it's a bit like being an analyst for investing as well. Like you trying to put the p- pieces together in the puzzle, do your research, your channel checks, and. Like, how do you balance like researching, writing, fact checking? So I, I don't really, I don't think there is any way to be, um, I don't really think there's any way to be efficient about, about investigative journalism or about trying to tell a story because you have to go down rabbit holes to figure out what matters. And you have to talk to people who will turn out to be crazy or the stories they tell will be irrelevant, or you'll decide that what they say is interesting, but it's just not germane to the narrative you're trying to tell. But you don't know unless you talk to people and you don't know if a document is useful unless you turn over every page. So I think I've, I've decided that the quest for efficiency in journalism is 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 a false one, and you have to just do everything because you never know what it is that's that's going to be the magic conversation that pulls the whole thing together, the document that has the fact that suddenly lights up the page. And so, I I, I am not particularly efficient. I wish I wish I I wish I could. I wish my focus were perfect all the time. It's not, but but that's a different story. Yeah, because as you. As you say, writing is both social and asocial, and you spend a lot of time talking with people, and then you spend a lot of time sitting quiet in a room and writing by yourself. So, so how do how do you get the most out of people? Well, it's it's funny. I've been thinking about that because I, like you, I do some podcasting now, and. It, it's very different. I you'd think that someone who is a journalist would be a natural podcaster, but I'm I'm not, and it's made me think about the differences between the two. So if I'm interviewing somebody privately for something I'm working on, 
I just want to listen. And I try to interrupt as little as possible and to hear what they have to say and try to let the conversation go where they want to take it because I'm there to learn from them and hear what they have to say. And that's very different than directing a, a conversation for public consumption. Um, so, so, so my, again, I, I don't think of interviewing as something that's very efficient. I think that is something where you just have to let it spool out as it, as it will, so that you're really making sure you hear what the other person has to say. Yeah. And then you need to go from, from that to actually get the story out there when you're writing, at least like when you're publishing and for investors or anyone who is trying to act on information, it's, it's hard to know when to say, I know enough now. And to actually stop. And I heard you say in another interview that journalism is a game of getting to 75% knowledge. So we're curious to hear like your insights on how to decide when to stop researching and actually take the decision. <laughs> to be honest, I don't think I have any great insight into that. I think I stop because most things I do have a deadline. And so if I'm working on if on a story, then it has a deadline. If I'm working on a book, it has a deadline and you have to stop because you have to start writing. <laughs> so, right. so I think that's the only reason I ever stop. I don't, I admire people who work on projects where they don't have a publisher yet and they don't have deadlines and they know how to get themselves to stop because I'm not sure I ever, I ever would. I've never worked without that constraint. I've never just worked on something where it's open-ended. So I, I, I don't really know the answer to that. I do know that for me, writing is, is I think the reason I both like and sometimes detest writing is that for me, it's an act of figuring out what I think. If I don't write, I don't actually know what I think. And I often sometimes don't even know what the questions are until I've tried to write. And so then usually once I've tried to write, I have to circle back and figure and talk to people again, because then I have to figure out then I have to figure out the things that I didn't figure out the first time around because I didn't know what to ask. And I, yeah. Yeah, it's different parts. I guess you take it st step by step. But do you have like small deadlines or do you just have one big deadline or maybe it's different? But yeah, usually one big deadline. For example, I'm working on a book now with um, the guy I wrote uh, All the Devils Are Here with and our deadline is March and that's it. And so within all the chapters and everything else, I have to figure out what my deadline needs to be in order to get the get the book done by then. Yeah, that requires a lot of discipline. <laughs> hopefully get it done by then <laughs> please my publisher don't listen to this podcast get it done by then yeah i was gonna say what what's happened you sit here with us now <laughs> right so so we're talking about stories as well how to build them and uh i think enron is probably one of the best examples in the world of how to build a great equity story and uh, a quote that i think really exemplifies this is skilling saying that if we put broadband into our name that would mean everything uh, as you write in the book and Uh, do you have some advice for the key elements for building a great story in general and the narrative? You mean for a business or for a writer? For both. I think as a, as a writer, I, I don't really know for, for, for business people. I want, uh, so I'll start with that first. I, I, I want to say that if you don't have the fundamentals, then the story isn't going to matter at some point. But I do think more and more there can be a gap where the story can carry you for a long time without having the fundamentals. And, and being a business person with immense charisma who convinces everybody that they're a visionary is worth a lot today because it can buy you years where you don't don't have to produce 
profits and where the capital markets will throw money at you. And that is probably gives you a huge competitive advantage over the person who doesn't know how to spin a story. I think at some point, the reality does have to catch up and you do have to produce the fundamentals. But ending on the craziness in the capital markets, that gap can be can be longer and longer. So I've become a little bit more cynical about that. I used to think businesses shouldn't tell stories. They should just present the facts. But obviously, if you look at the markets today, being able to tell a story is a, is a huge advantage. Um, for, for, for a journalist, I... I, I remember my um, my Joe, who who was my co-author on All the Devils Are Here, and who edited Smartest Guys, and was my editor for many years at Fortune used to criticize my writing sometimes when I'd give him something and he'd say, it doesn't move. It's just static. It's just sitting there on the page. And so for me, thinking about that concept of movement, that the story has to start somewhere and go somewhere and it, it has to it has to move is, is really, really useful. Or you can think of it, somebody else once described it to me as gravity, that it really good pieces have this almost gravitational pull that just pulls you through them. And because, and you don't, you don't stop because there's, you don't want to stop reading because there's a gravitational pull that's 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 bringing you through it and so I think trying to create that is is really important and I think that's some combination of compelling detail and character along with a certain sort of um, math like proof behind it that that logic that 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 pulls people through just as in a proof a well-done math proof, one line leads to the next um, almost inevitably. I think stories are something of the same way. They should have that same kind of inevitability to them. I was thinking about at your role at Fortune. We know that uh, Carol Loomis worked at Fortune yeah. during during the same time. Did you work together? Well, we never worked together. Fortune was a pretty solitary place. But yes, we were there. She was, I think she retired a few years before I left, but she was a huge presence at the magazine for most of the years I was there. I actually remember, funny speaking about Enron, I remember... um, the editors bringing her the draft of my Enron story before it was published because Carol was regarded as the person at the magazine who really understood numbers and who would be able to read a piece like this and make sure that every I was dotted and every T was crossed and that it made sense and that we weren't missing something because it was obviously a big deal to publish the story and the magazine was under a fu- under fire. And that was scary because Carol was this goddess at the time. And I remember her reading the piece and saying, it's, it's all there. There's there's nothing that changed. It's 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 solid. So fantastic to hear, right? <laughs> yeah, and really, when I look back on that, I suppose there's another element to it too, which is that Carol could have been different than she than she was. She she kind of held my fate and the fate of that story in the palm of her hand at that moment. And had she been a different sort of character, she could have said, "I." She could have just expressed some sort of skepticism without having anything factual. And she could have said, I don't really think so. This doesn't seem all that important to me. And she could have killed the story with, with that one line. And it's, it's interesting. I, I think it is a, um, it is also a comment on, on, on what a high quality person she is, that she was just intellectually honest and she thought the story was good. And that was that there wasn't any, there, there wasn't anything else there. Really interesting. And I mean, for those who don't know, Carol Loomis edit, uh, edits the uh, annual letters of Berkshire Hathaway and has done for, I don't know if you know, but many, many years. Many, many years. I don't know. If, does she still do it? I'm not, I'm not sure, but she probably does. Talking about leaders, because I, I think you can call her a leader in that role. Um, what kind of leader impresses you most? Huh. Um, I think someone who is someone who, someone who can balance 
competing perspectives. I think for many years in, in America, there's been this single-minded focus on profits as, as, as the sole gauge of, of whether a company is successful or not. And don't get me wrong, I think profits are important because if you're not making money, you're not going to be in business for very long. You're running a charity, not, not, not a business. But I think it has betrayed a certain sort of um, very simplistic way of thinking for CEOs to say, well, that's my only job is to focus on, on, on the bottom line. And I think a leader who can appreciate that their company is also impacting the world, impacting their employees, impacting their customers, and to be able to create some sort of balance between this need for profits now and the ability to pr- produce those profits in 20 years and a sense of how those profits are are how the company's actions are impacting the welfare of both its employees and, and, and the world at large. I think for somebody to be able to weigh and understand all those competing perspectives and balance them is, is incredibly impressive. I'm not sure I could do it. There's that great line from F. Scott Fitzgerald that the, um, the tr- true genius is somebody who can balance competing notions in their mind at the same time and not go crazy. And I think I think that I think that says a lot. Um, I think without it being too over the top, I think. I think great leaders do inspire people to do their best work. And I think they inspire them through a combination, an interesting combination of enthusiasm and pragmatism. I think the person who just does go, oh, how amazing, how wonderful, doesn't doesn't get that much done. And the person who is pragmatic and can't say only pragmatic perhaps doesn't offer that much that much that much charisma either. But the person who can balance enthusiasm and pragmatism, I think, is also really impressive. Yeah, and one leader we talked about was uh, scaling. Yeah, and uh, as humans, we're susceptible to trusting authorities, and so so how do we avoid getting swayed by these kind of people with such power and such charisma? I think it's really hard not to. I've often. I've said this before, you guys have probably heard me say it, but if I had left Goldman Sachs and been recruited to work at a up-and-coming energy company in Houston, Texas, and if I had ended up at Enron, perhaps even in Andy Fastow's division as a young finance person, would I have been a skeptic or would I have been a believer? I like to think I would have been a skeptic, of course, but I don't really know the answer to that. I think we are all products of the environment that we put ourselves into. And so I think most people, if they end up working in a company with an extraordinarily charismatic leader, they're going to end up believing in in that leader's that leader's vision. It's the way it's the way human nature work. And I say and I say most people, not not all people. So I do think you have to choose your environment pretty carefully because you will end up you through through this process of osmosis, you will end up being affected by your environment as much as you you affect it. So I I almost think it comes down to selection in the first place rather than any sort of actions once you've made the selection both interesting and, and scary in a way yeah yeah really yeah yeah but we really are when you think about it you know people say what you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with it's it's true we are we are not you're not the static impermeable entity moving through the world over the course of your life you're fluid and as part of that fluidity um, the the places where you put yourself are going to end up sh- it's are going to end up shaping you and so you have to be you have to be pretty cognizant that you're being shaped in a way that you like and i think that's i think some can be very difficult in advance do you think your math skills are helping you to stay more rational i do i think that math Math teaches you doing proofs for a long time. 
<laughs> so <laughs> funny, my, my mom was throwing stuff out. She's not very sentimental and she was throwing out a bunch of my old papers and I was looking at some of my old math work from college and I could recognize my own handwriting, but the math work itself, I mean, I had no idea. It was this very strange experience of knowing that something was in my handwriting, but having absolutely no idea what it said. So I don't want to pretend to still be a mathematician, but the, but the training stays with you, which is that it's that, that, that logic that A has to lead to B and that you have to separate yourself from the emotion of the story and just be able to, to see very clearly that one thing leads to the next. And I think if you're trained in that for a long period of time, for instance, through majoring in math and in college, then that, that way of thinking stays with you. Yeah. And then on the other hand, you also need to be an open-minded person to take in all perspectives as a journalist. And in the in the book, you write that uh, when Skilling worked for McKinsey, partners there began saying that he's sometimes wrong, but never in doubt. And that was a quote that really stayed with me. And then I saw your, your byline on Twitter saying, often wrong, always in doubt. Right. So, so what does this mean to you? Well, I, I think... I, I put that there because I want I want to be clear that I that I that I I don't I don't think I'm right all the time and I I don't I have plenty of examples where I, where I haven't been right and I think it's really important to leave yourself open to the possibility that you might be wrong while still moving forward because if you don't move forward then if you let your doubt paralyze you then 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 you don't then you don't do anything but you have to stay open to changing your mind or to a new fact coming along that makes you say oh I have to rethink everything I was thinking before for because so much of, of it's not what's the right way of saying this I don't think I don't think seeing things clearly is the linear accumulation of evidence. I think you accumulate evidence and all of a sudden something comes along that completely changes the prism through which you see the evidence that you've accumulated. And that's the moment of change, not the, not the, not the weighting of each fact against each other. It's all of a sudden the prism through which you see what you've gathered changes and you, and you see it differently and you have to be open for those moments or open to those moments. I mean, to take a, a practical example of that i mean for example what if you make up your mind that a person is a crook and then in the end he is uh is actually good yeah i mean um how do you how do you handle that that type of situation and then have you been in that have you had that experience yourself I would. I, I think the closest one for me is probably thinking about elon musk um and i think through 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 the way I normally think about people, I would have thought of Elon Musk as maybe not a crook. That's a little bit too harsh, but as, as sort of a, the P.T. Barnum of our of, of our age, someone who's 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 willing to lie and cheat in order to to get to get what he wants. And so I would have thought for a long time that that would have meant that Tesla wouldn't succeed. And I think for me, starting to frame things as this, I don't know when it occurred to me, but this idea that the visionary and fraudster aren't on opposite ends of the spectrum, but are sort of where the circle meets and that one can, can become the other through a quirk of fate that is really hard to predict in, 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 in advance. And that for me changed the prism through which I see, see things. And I thought, well, Musk could do all these bad things and have all these characteristics that might normally, that one might normally say he will end up where, where Jeff Skilling ended up, not, not necessarily in jail. I'm not, to me, the line between, and maybe it's worth talking about, but the line between wrongdoing and actually criminal fraud is, is another sort of interesting line and just because a company ends up bankrupt doesn't mean the person running it is, is, is a criminal. But um, but but being able to see that, oh, Musk could very well go down in history as a visionary. 
And that doesn't mean all these, all these characteristics of his aren't there, but that, that those characteristics don't mean that this is where he's going to end up. I mean, do you, do you typically wait with making a commitment uh, on, on your perspective? I mean, uh, do you slow it down? Your, your commitment to that? Or? Well, so the nice thing about being a writer is that you don't necessarily have to commit to a perspective, right? I mean, it's it's not, that's the the bias toward action. If you're an investor, then you probably have to commit. But it, but if you're a writer, you can, you can explain it. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. You rarely have to see the world if you're a writer. You rarely have to see it through, through, through the black and white of, I'm going to invest in this company and believe, or I'm not going to invest in this company. You, you, you you can lay out the case, which I think is actually, to me, is far more interesting because the world is not the world is not black and white. <laughs> it's really fascinating how much luck plays into this. Yeah, like in the end, there's so much. Right, I think it. And, I, um, I, I think it does. I think it does. So coming back to to the book, you said you were writing uh, right now. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how's, how's that, what is it about? <laughs> so it's it's really difficult. I think it's probably the hardest book I've tried to write. Joe and I are trying to write about the pandemic, but through the lens of what it has shown about in really focused on the US what it has shown about our 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 economy's weaknesses, the 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 cracks in our economic and social setup that the pandemic either revealed or exacerbated. So it's 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 difficult and the pandemic is obviously ongoing which which makes things more challenging. It didn't it didn't come to an end and will probably never come to an end. So I think some of the changes are it's not a thing that is going to come and go. Um, so it's it's challenging. It's interesting to think about it. I think I think it's I think it's incredibly important these these issues. But it but um, the issues are obvious. I think the story, trying to figure out how to tell it as a story is is the hardest part. Yeah, I'm dealing with a moving target and trying to draw any conclusions. It's yeah, I can really relate as an investor because the companies are always developing and it's always changing and right. you never know. But I'm really looking forward to the book. Thank you. I hope it gets done. Again, I hope my <laughs> publisher is not listening to this. <laughs> it's, going to get done, really. it's going to get done. Hopefully we can have another talk by then. I, um, I would love that. This is a, a podcast about books. Uh, typically, I mean, our, our aim is to learn learn from books and not only books, of course. We, we, we like to read more or less everything. I was wondering, are you a big reader yourself? I am. Yeah. I actually grew up, my parents never had a TV set and still don't own a TV. So I am, I've started watching more TV late, lately in the pandemic year, but I, I don't, there's no TV anywhere in this apartment. Um, and I'm very, very late to watching, to watching TV instead of reading because I just didn't grow up that way and it doesn't occur to me. How much how much reading time do you spend in a typical day? Um, it depends on if so. I do a podcast with a guy, a professor at the University of Chicago named Luigi Singalis, and we often have to read for our for our podcast. So I mix that reading with the reading I do for pure pleasure, and so it it, it depends. It depends, and I I do I've started watching more TV with my children, and so we we have. So it depends on whether I've made them go to bed or whether we <laughs> watch TV. So. And is it both fiction and nonfiction? Yes. Yeah. 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 When will and you write I, your I, first fiction book? My children are very eager for that because they say the things I write are extremely boring and they would like me to write something that <laughs> boring. So maybe one of these years. <laughs> and do you have some specific uh, titles, uh, some recommendations? 
So I tend to, um, I, I could give historical titles, but I tend to be, I'll be focused more on things that I've read recently that have really stood out to me. If you haven't read Martin Gurry's book, The Death of the Elites, I think that's really interesting and provocative. Um, Adrian Woldridge's new book about meritocracy, I think is really thought provoking. It's a history of meritocracy, the idea of meritocracy, and in the end, sort of a defense of it, of this idea that is very much under fire today. So so those are two books that I've read that I have that I have really that I've really enjoyed and found very very thought provoking intellectually speaking. Um, on a less exalted note, um, because Dune is being released, I'm going back and rereading Dune, and I had actually never read as a kid past the first book. So I now have the whole Dune series to read, which is super super exciting. Thank you so much, Bethany, for a great conversation about you and your books and uh, teaching us many lessons and insights. Do you have something more you want to add before we finish up? No, thank you very much for having me on. This was delightful and enjoy your evening and hopefully we'll talk again. Great. And and lastly, where can our audience follow you? The podcast, Twitter? Yeah, I, I, I'm not as active on social media as I should be. I never have been, but I am on Twitter at BethanyMac12, and I usually will try to tweet my my podcasts or whatever I've done. Um, I'm not always great about it, but I but I try. <laughs> Thank you so much, Bethany. Thank you guys so much. Good luck to you. Thank you for listening to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Red Eye. You can follow us on Twitter at ib underscore Red Eye and email us at ib.podcast at redeye.se. To improve the podcast, we really appreciate your feedback, so please rate and review us. Notice that the content in this podcast is not and shall not be construed as investment advice. This information is meant to be informative and for general purposes only. For full disclaimer, visit redeye.se. For the sound engineering and editing of this podcast, we thank Gustav Tesch. I'm your host, Eddie Palmian, and until next time, I sincerely wish you the best of luck on your journey through life and investing.